0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Canons of Mass Construction. This is Edward Ornstein, Professor Fodder's teaching assistant and a member of the Southeastern Muskogee Nation. Last episode, we began looking at tribal usufructuary rights, the rights of Indians to hunt, fish, and gather on off-reservation and on-reservation treaty land. We really focused on how Indians have held on to their usufructuary rights despite primarily private and state government actors seeking to divest folks of these rights. We also looked at the modern scope, extent, and state regulation of these rights. This episode, we'll be looking more at the limits of those rights before pushing ahead to a somewhat less enjoyable topic, the termination of those rights, including rights to hunt, fish, and gather on reservation as well as off reservation but I do hope that we will end on a positive note today. First off, let's look at another U.S. versus Washington case in the Ninth Circuit. Remember that the last U.S. versus Washington case we looked at was down in the district courts about 10 years prior and determined that in Washington, the state has a duty not to block the passage of fish upstream or downstream of tribes, usual and accustomed fishing places again in the Western District of Washington, this time stemming from a different line of litigation, the court again considered whether those barrier culverts needed to be removed following a treaty argument, and whether the federal government had waived the Indian sovereign immunity on behalf of the tribe by action or inaction, therefore not requiring the state to go forward with their barrier culvert fixes. Here, the state argued that the purpose of the treaty, was to open the region to settlement, while the federal government argued that the Indian Party certainly had a different understanding of the treaty, as encompassed by the plain treaty language itself. The District Court determined that, as the treaty-making was conducted in Chinook by skilled federal negotiators, then translated to English by federally employed interpreters, the Indians did not think they were negotiating to affirm their right to fishing locations obstruct it by barrier culverts without any fish. Here, the Marshall Cohen Federal Indian Law canons of construction are again employed, and the treaty is interpreted by the court as the tribe would have understood it at the time of signing, leading the court to infer that the treaty included a time-unlimited commitment to not obstruct Indian fishing by getting rid of all of the fish. The Ninth Circuit Appeals Court affirmed this decision and enjoined Washington to make immediate corrections and remedial actions to conform to their treaty obligation, so that the tribes would have enough fish to make a moderate living. The Court stated that only an act of Congress, and not inaction or latches, or estoppel, uh, can diminish or render unenforceable otherwise valid Indian treaty rights, or constitute a waiver of sovereign immunity. The Ninth Circuit concluded that otherwise, the state violated and continues to violate its obligation to tribes under the Fishing Clause of the Treaty. Excitingly, this case actually made it to the US Supreme Court in 2018, where it was affirmed with a divided court, meaning that this case was affirmed in the Ninth Circuit, although it does not quite bind other circuits. Next, let's look at the Menominee Tribe of Indians versus the United States, a Supreme Court decision from 1968. Now frankly, this is the case that I think of when I think of Indian usufructuary rights. Many of y'all will be familiar with the termination era, where the U.S. government just started getting rid of federal recognition and support for many different tribes in the name of saving federal dollars and more fully assimilating Indians into the federal system. In the middle of this bureaucratic genocide were real folks losing access to their livelihoods. The 1854 Treaty of Wolf River had guaranteed the right to fish and hunt on the reservation, but 100 years later in 1954, the Menominee Indian Termination Act was passed. In 1962, wisconsin began trying to apply wisconsin regulations to the former reservation the tribe sued all the way up to the wisconsin supreme court but they ruled that indian hunting and fishing rights had indeed been abrogated under the termination act then the tribe sued in the court of claims the federal court that takes suits against the u.s government for things like breaking a treaty this court held that the hunting and fishing rights were not abrogated under the Termination Act. So now we've got a state Supreme Court and a specially empowered federal court of claims with polar opposite decisions. And the Supreme Court needs to weigh in. And it does. At issue is whether the Tribal Termination Acts abrogated those usufructuary rights. The Supreme Court looked to legislative history and found that Some proposed termination acts actually expressly preserved usufructuary rights, but the one that passed was silent, didn't abrogate, didn't preserve, and just stated that its purpose was to provide for the orderly termination of federal supervision over the property and members of the tribe, saying nothing about divesting any rights to it. And Public Law 280, which had been passed about two months after that termination act, became law, but seven years before the act actually became fully effective. And PL 280 stated that nothing shall deprive any Indian or any Indian tribe, band, or community of any right, privilege, or immunity afforded under federal treaty agreement or statute with respect to hunting, trapping, or fishing, or the control, licensing, or regulation thereof. And so the court found that While the federal relationship to the tribe may have been terminated, this didn't change the character of the land as Indian country. And so PL 280 applied and buttressed the existing treaties. Read together with the Termination Act as statutory construction demands, the court determined that federal supervision of the tribe and tribal property was to cease, but that the hunting and fishing rights were explicitly preserved by PL 280 and the Termination Act did not expressly abrogate the treaty rights, a great decision for the tribe, showing that tribal use of fructuary rights can actually survive the termination of the tribe itself. And thankfully, the tide of termination later turned, and the federal government renewed its relationship with the Menominee in 1973 with the Restoration Act. Next let's look at a 1985 Supreme Court case, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife versus the Klamath Indian Tribe, where the court considered what happened to rights on ceded reservation lands and whether they could be regulated by the state. As always, let's start with a dive into the history. In 1864, a treaty established the reservation and exclusive hunting and fishing rights. In 1896, a Boundary Commission concluded that 617,000 acres had been accidentally excluded from the reservation in violation of the treaty. Whoops. A few years later, the Boundary Commission suggested negotiating payment for the excluded acreage. In 1901, the tribe agreed to cede the lands in question in exchange for compensation. And then, in 1954, The tribe was terminated and land was forcibly sold off in 5,000 acre chunks to paper mills and other land speculators. And over half a million acres was lost in the decades before the tribe was restored in 1986, a year after this court decision. In the meantime, the Indian Claims Commission in 1969 actually awarded $4.1 million of additional compensation owed by the United States for lands ceded in the 1901 agreement, meaning that the 1901 agreement was actually greatly undervalued in the United States compensation for those Indian lands. But the Claims Commission said nothing about hunting and fishing rights. Now, this case is looking specifically at what the treaty rights are on the chunk that was accidentally excluded, then ceded in 1901, then recompensated for by the ICC, that 617,000 acres that the Boundary Commission first noted was accidentally excluded from the reservation. The court, like always, turned to legislative history, treaty language, and a look at the statute, but found that the plain language of the treaty actually ran counter to the tribe's claims. The hunting and fishing and gathering rights were not intended to be free of regulation off of the reservation on ceded lands, as the language of the treaty limited those rights only to the lands included within the reservation. A much less generous treaty than the Stevens Treaties in Washington that we've already looked at, and one that really left the tribe with little to work with. While the tribe lost this case, their federal recognition was restored a year later, and they were left not just with no rights to the 617,000 acres, accidentally excluded from the reservation, but also no rights to the over 500,000 acres sold off to private buyers during the termination before the tribe's federal restoration. In total, over a million acres lost to predatory land speculators buying Indian land out from under the tribe without sufficient compensation or consent of the tribal government. But this isn't in conflict with the other cases we've looked at. As far as the Supreme Court is concerned, the Indians took a bad deal in the treaty by restricting usufructuary rights to only on reservation, then took a, a bad deal in 1901 that the ICC later had to recompensate the tribe for, and then got dealt a bad hand and lost all the land sold off during termination. So while the canons of construction mean that the courts are sometimes feeling generous enough to interpret ambiguous language in favor of the tribes, whenever the language is just plainly anti-tribal, the court will go with that. Of course, we have to remember that the federal government didn't even allow tribes to hire their own lawyers without interior approval. Until the late 80s or early 90s, so we've got to be a little suspicious about how the tribe kept getting into these bad deals, because it wasn't exactly of their own accord. Anyways, let's turn now to a pretty famous case, US versus Dion, a 1986 Supreme Court case decided about a year later from the last case we were looking at, asking whether the Yankton Sioux retained treaty rights to hunt bald and gold eagles that was not abrogated by both the Eagle Protection Act and the Endangered Species Act. In the lower court, Dion had been convicted of shooting four eagles on the reservation and selling their feathers. The appeals court, however, vacated some of the charges and said that the Eagle Protection Act, as amended, made an exception for religious non-commercial uses and the tribe retained treaty rights to hunt eagles on reservation, and so a jury must be needed to determine if the use Dion was making was religious and non-commercial. Then the Supreme Court came in, reversed on the appeals court, primarily because of the language of the Eagle Protection Act as amended. Dion held out treaty rights as his defense to prosecution. To determine whether the tribes' treaty rights survived the Eagle Protection Act and Endangered Species Act, the Court looked for a plain and clear intent by Congress to abrogate those acts by considering express declarations, legislative history, the language of the Act, or other sources of clear evidence. The Eagle Protection Act and Endangered Species Act expressly made it a crime to hunt eagles, or listed species, depending on the act you're talking about. Therefore, the court acknowledged that while tribes generally have exclusive hunting and fishing rights on reservation as guaranteed by treaty, these rights could still be abrogated by Congress in its plenary powers over Indian affairs. Looking at the legislative history, the court determined that Congress considered Indian rights, built in a permit process to the Eagle Protection Act, and thus abrogated the general rights to hunt eagles on reservation unless you had that permit, something I'm sure Dion wasn't aware of. And as the Eagle Protection Act had divested Dion of his rights to hunt eagles on reservation without a permit, by extension he could not use that argument to defend against Endangered Species Act charges, because that right had been abrogated by Congress. So Mr. Dion came out of this appeal with almost as many charges as he started with and the Supreme Court holding that no Indians could hunt eagles on reservation or off reservation without a permit. The key takeaway here, Congress can take away usufructuary rights if they make it clear that they intend to. They give and they take. Next, let's look at Anderson versus Evans a Ninth Circuit case decided in 2004, considering whether the Marine Mammal Protection Act applies to tribal whaling, given the explicit treaty language protecting Indian rights to take whales. Here, the decision will actually be similar to Dion, except the court will rule that the treaty rights exist, but under the regulation of the Marine Mammal Protection Act, or MMPA, while in Dion the court ruled that that right had actually been abrogated and was only exercisable with a permit. So let's dive into the history to see why and to see if this distinction actually makes a difference. First, let's look at the whales. The California gray whale has an annual migration through the tribes treaty whaling waters that are now part of a marine sanctuary. They were once nearing extinction but were delisted after a population resurgence in 1994. There are now tens of thousands of them. The Maka tribe tried to resume whaling based on the Treaty of Nea Bay, in which they had actually given up tribal lands in exchange for retaining fishing and whaling rights. Whaling, practically speaking, had been abandoned in the 1920s during government, quote unquote, discouragement following a decline in the demand for whale oil and the decline of the whale population. But the custom was revived in the 1990s by tribal members after the whale population had rebounded. It bears mentioning here that there was a stable whale population throughout the known history of tribal whaling in the region until commercial non-native whaling, a la Captain Ahab, moved in on the scene. Federal agencies were actually pretty accommodating of the tribe's attempts to whale in 1990s, and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and National Marine Fisheries Service approved a quota of whales to be hunted by the tribe, but they did not apply the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which limited takings through an explicit permit or waiver. But then the Humane Society sued. Frankly, all the agencies would have needed to do was explicitly grant that waiver to avoid this case, but they didn't think that they needed to because of the tribe's treaty whaling rights. So the court, using a precedent, Freyberg, to determine the test, asked whether the U.S. had jurisdiction in the waters, whether the MMPA was applied in a non-discriminatory manner, and whether applying the MMPA to treaty rights was necessary for conservation purposes. The court did find that the U.S. had jurisdiction off of Washington's coast, the moratorium on whaling imposed by the MMPA was being applied across the board in a non-discriminatory manner, and combined with the permitting process, congressional language indicated clear concern not just about the survival of the species, but about the optimum sustainable population, which remained a concern even after delisting under the ESA. And so the policy applying to the tribes was a conservation necessity. This case doesn't address the abrogation of rights at all, like Dion did. It just concludes that a federal regulation was needed for a conservation necessity and that the procedure used by the tribes to exercise their right was incorrect. This isn't great for the tribe back in 2004, But it left the tribe with a lot of options going forward. Almost 20 years later, in 2021, an administrative judge has just recommended that the tribe resume hunting a quota of whales—up to three whales on an even-numbered year and one on an odd-numbered year. The Animal Welfare Institute and Sea Shepherd Society have already begun objecting but because the right was never abrogated like in Dion, the tribe has been able to stay in court trying to get their waiver for whaling. All they need is the final okay from an official in the National Marine Fisheries Service. So this case went back to those canons of construction. If Congress had affirmed a right in a treaty, Congress must explicitly abrogate that right for that right no longer to be accessible by the tribes. While that did happen in Dion, that didn't quite happen here in Anderson, and it makes a world of difference. In sum, Congress's plenary powers over Indian affairs are vast and sweeping, and this extends especially to usufructuary rights. Whatever Congress says goes. If the treaty they sign says that the tribes should be able to make a living off of fish, they've got to be able to make a living off of the fish. If the congressionally signed treaty says that tribes get to hunt and fish on reservation, even termination of the federal relationship to the tribe won't disrupt that absent clear intent to abrogate those rights by Congress. But if Congress does clearly abrogate a right, like in Dion, that right is toast. We can see this paradigm playing out live with the Macaw tribe's struggle to wail again. Something struck down on procedural grounds for not following congressional policy, but which will likely be permitted once the Macaw tribe finishes threading the bureaucratic needle, also because of congressional policy. Treaty language and subsequent statutes are the bread and butter of usufructuary rights and Native American natural resources generally. That's always where you should turn when trying to evaluate whether a right is treaty protected or congressionally abrogated. If this has all been very confusing, that's because it's supposed to be. The natural resources of Indian country is where the value's at for the federal government. The mystery of federal Indian bureaucracy and tribes' lack of access to courts without a federally approved lawyer until the last few decades has meant that tribes are always getting the short end of the stick. But, by figuring out the minutiae of how the courts evaluate Native natural resource claims and rights, we can start to unravel the mystery and see a path forward for restoring Native stewardship of this land and its many resources. A pretty optimistic future, compared to the last century that we've been looking at, if you ask me. This concludes our overview of Native American natural resources under federal Indian law. Tune in next episode while Professor Fodder takes a look at international law and its applications to Native natural resources. Thank you for joining us on Canons of Mass Construction.